It's time now once again to take a seat at Arthur's table. Today, the Food FM chef Arthur Potts Dawson is joined by David Gleave of Liberty Wines. Not talking about wines this time, but his other great passion, the world of fine olive oils. Sourdough at the ready. Arthur's Table on Food FM with your host, Arthur Potts Dawson. And so we're here with David Gleave. Uh, the owner and creator of Liberty Wines, um, but we're not talking about wines. Uh, we're talking about David Gleave and his knowledge for olive oil because we're in olive oil season at the moment. Uh, we're deep into the heart of November. We have an opportunity to really talk about olive oil, the character of it, where it's from, and why we should care so much about it. So, hi, David. Uh, David, uh, just to start off, it would be lovely to sort of personalise this a little bit and get a sense of who you are and your passion for food. What really got you involved both in wine and then later olive oil? Arthur, good to see you. Um, it's a long story, really. It was um, I've been on a long gap year. I sort of was in university in Canada, which is where I grew up. I decided to take a year off to travel, um, and that was in the uh, late 70s. And I arrived in London in about 1978, did a bit of traveling, came back to London and thought, well, I'll stay for a bit longer. It's quite interesting. And I'm still here. I didn't have any sort of qualifications, so I had to get a job, so I got a job working in a bar, and that led to um, one that had wine, and I decided to sort of uh, look a bit at, you know, le- learn something about the wines. Then I started working in a restaurant, and I fell in love with food um, and wine, um, and then I worked my way into, into the wine business and started importing wines. I was working for someone else who... Uh, a guy called Nick Belford, who'd written books on Italian wine and was writing books on Italian wine and taught me huge amounts. And we started importing wines from uh, Italy, and particularly Tuscany. And those producers, had um, they also had olive oil. Um, they had olive trees planted. And in the late 80s, they were just recovering from the huge frost of January 1985, which wiped out the 85 and 86 harvest pretty well. So I thought, well, let's you know, bring in a bit of oil. You know, if we don't sell it, at least we'll have something good to use on our, um, in our kitchen. And uh, it just sort of rose grey and Ruthie Rogers said to me one day, we want to use your olive oils. And I said, come on, you're a bit mad, aren't you? It's a, they're expensive. They're too expensive for a restaurant. And, I mean, you know what those two are like. They just said, no, they're the best. That's what we want. And uh, it all went from there. And we've been sort of... Um, bringing these oils from these producers, these wine producers and oil producers, um, into the UK for over 30 years. So, David, you've been travelling to Tuscany then for 40 years, or how long have you been travelling to Tuscany for? Uh, not quite not quite 40, um, but, yeah, thir- uh, well over 30, shall we say. Yeah, and yeah. so 30 years of, of Tuscan food. So, you know, food is obviously a conduit for conversation and a conduit for wine and, and olive oil deeply immersed in the Italian cuisine, especially in Tuscany. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your experience of a Tuscan food before we go into wine and olive oil? Uh, Tuscan food is sort of simplicity itself, I think. Uh, you know, you, you, you grill a bit of meat. You have, you have pasta, of course, every day. If you look at the statistics of how much pasta the Italians eat generally, it, it works out pretty well. 100 grams for lunch and 100 grams per, for dinner – Per, uh, for every person in the peninsula. So, that, you know, it's religious. And that takes into account places like sort of Piemonte in the northwest, Veneto in the northeast, where risotto quite often takes the place of, of pasta. And oil in Tuscany is always involved in, in, in that cooking. 
I've got a friend, one of the producers of Capizano Oil here, and you know she works with her family. Um, she also has, you know, with her husband, they live with their three children in in Chianti, and she says, you know, in a, in a year we'll we'll get through over sixty liters of oil in the family, just the five of them. During lockdown, she said we were getting through the equivalent of ninety liters a year. So ninety a, liters of oil in one year, just for the two family. Bottles a day. Uh, two bottles a week, rather. Two bottles a week. Two bottles of olive oil a week. And, and there, I was listening to a, a, an olive oil tasting, which we're going to get an opportunity to do today, looks like, again. Um, but one of, the, uh, one of the families, I think it was the Capitana family, was saying they've been making olive oil since the Roman times. I mean, it's, it's deeply embedded in their culture and society, isn't it? Yeah, completely. And if you, you look at the, the landscape outside Florence or Siena, you know, any of those central Tuscan cities, those soils and those landscapes are very rugged, very wild. And the soils are pretty inhospitable to most crops, especially on the, uh, the higher up you go. So really the only thing they can cultivate there uh, is, uh, is the vine and the olive tree because they're both plants of Mediterranean origin. But those soils are... Uh, the vine is, is used to dealing with poor soils, as is the olive tree, and to drier climates. So, so they both are, are the only things that are really suited to those soils. And you've got to remember, a lot of those estates were created either by, some, in, in the case of Capizana, soldiers returning from Roman campaigns, and, and like a lot of soldiers returning, were given a piece of land to thank them for their service to the empire, or in the central Tuscan hills by the great Florentine families of the you know, pre-Renaissance and the Renaissance, who made a huge amount of money. There were, you know, that's where banking really started in Florence in the sort of 13th, 14th century. It was the equivalent of London, New York, and Tokyo today in terms of banking. These people made lots of money. And the same architects they used to build their palaces, their palazzi in Florence, they also used to build their summer houses in Chianti or other parts of, of, of Tuscany um, because you want to get out of Florence in the summer. You know, it is hot. And so they did. They would leave and go to the hills. So there's literally sort of history falling out of the trees in these uh, these olive trees, isn't there? I mean, there's history in the making, and and some of these olive trees are eight, nine, a thousand years old. They can be certainly not not in Chianti anymore or in Tuscany because of the frosts. Mm. But if you go to an area like the the Tuscan coast or down into the Maremma, down around Grosseto, or down southern Italy, particularly in the Salento Peninsula in in Puglia, you'll see, you know, in Salento there's UNESCO protected sites for these century-old trees, and they're fantastic. Terribly difficult to work, but they look brilliant. So there's, yeah, the history is amazing. And one of the producers here, Fontodi, there's a, a law in, in the EU that you cannot plant land that didn't previously have vineyards. So someone sent him a print from, uh, I think it might have been the Uffizi in Florence. It was one of the museums in Florence, which showed on his estate, a piece of land he had bought, showed uh, vines and olive trees there from the 1500s. So he was able to take that, go to the authorities and say, historically, vines were planted here, so I should be able to plant vines here now. So using art as an, a, a way of planting more 
vineyards and, and, and olives. And, and what's interesting about the character of the olives that, that, that are on the trees in Tuscany, but all over the Mediterranean, are the hands that work them. I remember these olive pickers that were up in the trees, and their hands almost look like the, you know, the twigs and branches of the olive trees, right? Yeah. And it's still very manual labor. I mean, you know, there are some people who will pick mechanically, but they use a, almost like a mechanical rake to go through the, 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 the trees to, to scrape the olives off because what you want to make sure you're doing is picking the olives before they're fully ripe. It used to be, in the old days, people would put sheets underneath the trees and the olives would fall out of the tree into the sheet. Once there were enough on the sheet, they'd bundle it up and take it to the press. That's too late. The olives are rancid by that point, and the oil will be yellow and old. Um, today, what they want, and this is what the Tuscans want, they want this bright green, slightly aggressive oil that has this catches in the back of your throat. You know, some of them, they, they, you know, they're sharp and peppery as a vindaloo. I mean, you know, you, you sort of have a sip and you go, oh, my God, I can't taste anymore. But that's, that's the, the real Tuscan, particularly the Florentine oil, because it's a bit cooler up there. Um, well, I, I've had the taste of Ligurian oil, and the Ligurians, uh, in their thrifty nature, they tend to use the old silk parachutes left over from the Second World War and let the olives drop. And when they drop, like you say, they press them, and the oil's a bit softer and it's a bit more buttery and it's a bit more yellow uh, without any of that pungency. Um, but I think, David, it's fair to say, and hopefully I'm not making too much of a, an assumption here, but I do think that your work that you've done with the Tuscan vineyards and the olive oil producers and they tend to go hand in hand don't they they produce wine and olive oil is that you've brought olive oil to the london market since the 80s uh, rose and ruth as you as you say are you know the owners of the river cafe um rose is very luckily one of my mentors and ruthie still is um but you know you've been instrumental in in working with these vineyards to bring olive oil into London and, and, and to the world to a degree, but, but London in particular. How has that felt? I mean, has there been a development, you know, the, the maturation of the olive oils, they're growing up, they've got great you know, labels, and they've also got a great reputation. But how has that been to, to see it change and develop? Oh, it's been fascinating. Because I think when, when, you know, I first started visiting there and, and we'd go with, um, you know, Rose and Ruthie, uh, starting in about, 1990 or so, it was still, there hadn't been too much that had changed for hundreds of years, with the exception of, you know, in the old days you would have had a mule dragging the, or a big ox dragging the sort of the, uh, the two granite stones around to crush the, the olives, and some of them had been mechanized um, back in the 80s. So that was new, but everything else was pretty old-fashioned. All the paste was open to the air, so it got oxidized. The paste was loaded onto these mats, um, which, uh, you know, wasn't very hygienic. And again, compounded the oxidation that had taken place. The oil was then put into terracotta jars, these lovely orchi, which are fantastic things, but they're not best suited to storage of olive oil. You know, they're great with soil and plants in them now for decorative purposes. But, but oil should be kept in stainless steel and should be kept in a hermetically sealed environment so it retains fresh freshness. But really, you know, good oil today should go should be filtered and go in the bottle right away. That's how you preserve the freshness that was in the oil and in the uh, in the olive and in the oil as soon as it had been pressed. And I think that's the big change we'd seen. Seen, and in the eighties when we got there, you know, the wines had undergone a dramatic revolution in the previous two decades, and were getting better and better. And today, there's no doubt they're, they're world class. 
um, and that's been fantastic to watch. Oil was well behind wine, whereas today I think it's caught up. And the you know the technology, the approach, and also the you know the the, the market for it and the consumer acceptance um, has come hand in hand with the progress in, in quality. Olive oil, you know, has got something to do with the Mediterranean diet, you know, longevity, people living longer, fresher, it, 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 it's better for your body. And I know that olive oil, um, there was a story that was one uh, um, olive oil producer was saying that to the, her mother had used olive oil and vinegar, which sounds like a salad dressing to me, on her skin. Yes, yeah. It's, and there are some people who, you know, will, will sometimes use a little bit of oil to sort of um, keep the glow on their skin, perhaps, you know, and, and, and uh, I have heard that. I think these days there are probably other, other things that they're using. But, you know, historically, if you think about it, you go back before the Second World War, the price of a litre of olive oil was the same price as a pair of shoes in Florence. Um, now, you know, Gucci started in Florence. So, you know, shoes were not cheap items. So olive oil was expensive. So to actually use it on your skin or your hands, you had to be relatively rich, you know. But I think these days, you know, a litre of olive oil, you know, you'd need about, you know, 10 litres to get a, get a pair of shoes, decent pair of shoes, maybe even more. So there's been this disconnect over the last few decades. Well, it's interesting, David. We can go back to this, to the serious discussion about, you know, these, um, the the men and women in the trees who are picking these olives, you know, they're experienced. And yes, they're using now mechanical combs, but they would originally use combs and their fingers are dark brown and they're, they're tanned because they're working out, outdoors all, all the time. But they have to pick 100 kilos to get 10 litres, 100 kilos of olives to get 10 litres. Now, we're talking about a huge volume that's being turned into only 10 litres or 100 litres. You, know, you need a tonne for 100 litres. How then, um, you know, and then we say some of these olive oils are expensive, but that's not expensive. It's manual labour. You've got to do, cart it up the hill. You've got to get it pressed. You've got to bottle it. I mean, you know, I think olive oil is, is a fair price or, or maybe is undervalued. I think I would. Uh, it is expensive, but that doesn't mean it's not fair value and probably even underpriced. You're getting, from each of those olive trees you see on our Tuscan hillside, you're at best getting about a litre of oil. Um, sometimes in a year like this, you're probably getting 75 centiliters of oil from those trees. And there are any number of reasons for that. But you're right, it is totally manual labor. And, and I think that you look at those people working in the fields and in the trees, and it's a, it is hard work. I think a lot of people think that, say, 2020, one of the reasons that it's been such a good harvest, yes, there's an element of a really good growing season. But 2020 was a year in which people weren't traveling the owners of the estates the managers they weren't traveling they weren't going to fairs they weren't going to do wine dinners they weren't going to do olive oil dinners they weren't going to sell because they were locked down they spent all the time in the in the vineyards and in a place like Felsena which has quite a few trees Felsena Berardengo who's the last oil here they were able to prune normally you prune 40 to 50 percent of your trees each year if you're doing it manually, because it's just too much work to get through. And that's one of the reasons why all of our production is, you, know, you have highs and lows, it tends to be alternate years. This year they were able to, to prune over 70% of their trees because they were able to devote much more time to the, to the countryside due to the pandemic. So I think it's, it's a huge amount of work to do. And, uh, and I think you know, we don't often think of that when we complain about the price of a bottle of olive oil on the shelf. What's 
so apparent in all of these olive oil producers is that they tend to have wine as their main subject. And let's say that there may be even 80 or 90 percent of their uh, their busyness or business comes from selling wine or producing wine. But olive oil seems to be a passion of theirs. You know, and they're really passionate about their olives on their trees. And, and Tuscany is not a huge county in Italy and its its topography changes quite dramatically between Pisa, Rome, Florence and, 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 and those areas but and yet the olive oil is different everywhere and, and the soil is different and, and the producers are different so it, it, it's passion and people that is producing such amazing oil isn't it? Yes and I think you're right and you know I've been in Florence or uh, you know other parts of Tuscany in late October early November and you see signs out you know l'olio nuovo the new oil is here um, you know, for them, it's an exciting moment. Mm. You know, Beatrice from Capitana, she says her kids are always saying, when's the new oil going to arrive? You know, they, they can't wait for that moment. So it is deeply ingrained in, in the Tuscan culture, as it is in you know, other parts of Italy. I tend to think in Tuscany it's because they have this particular style that it's, um, you know, more strongly um, ingrained there. Um, I'll be criticized by by some of my other Italian friends for saying that, but uh, there you go. But I think it's, and it is so varied. You know, we've got these six oils here. They're not that very distant from each other. You know, some of them are, you know, half an hour apart, and yet they change. They change as much as wine, uh, really, and I think it's because of this incredible combination of things. You know, we all talk about, when talking about wine, we talk about terroir, and it's such a loose and vague term. Um, it should be banned from the sort of the dictionary in a lot of ways because it's so so vague. Um, but it's a combination of factors, whether it's soil, it's the type of soil, it's the drainage, it's the altitude, it's the, the aspect and the exposition, it's proximity to water, be it a sea or a lake, any other moderating influence. It's also the people who are producing it. And, you know, you could argue it's the people who are tasting it because we'll all put our own imprint on it. We'll all view it through the prism of our past experiences. But the people who are making it are, you know, they've all got a very strong philosophy about what they want to do. And they will put their style um, on the oil, just as they do on the wine. I mean, Fontodi, you look at Fontodi, you know, there's a power and an elegance there with his oils that always reminds me of his wine, which are exquisite and beautifully balanced. So I think, you know, we need to think of these things as a, they have a strong sense of place. And I think a lot of olive oil that we see on our shelves, you know, and that's fine, that's one aspect of the market, is a commodity. It's commodity oil. And that's a blend of oils from various countries. And that's fine. It's a good way of getting a cheap everyday oil if that's what you want it for. I love these oils for lots of different reasons, for salads, for finishing, for just the taste of them and the sheer variety. Um, and I'm probably a bit extravagant with them. But I, but I love their individuality, and I think it's a, something that we should be um, celebrating. Well, quite a lot of the celebration for me is, is actually your point about trying to get rid of the, the word terroir, but, but the soil and the character of a region really comes out in the people that farm it. And I'd quite like to talk a little bit about the agriculture of Tuscany and different parts of Italy, is that Italy, although you think of it as a Gucci, Ferrari, olive oil drinking nation, actually it's still a very agricultural nation, isn't it? And they're still very much connected to their soil and, 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 and growing food. Um, what's been your experience of the agricultural systems in Italy and, and their passion for it all? 
it's a really complex subject. And I think, you know, one of the things to understand when you look at Italian um, agriculture today, you know, and I, I look at it through growing of olives and grapes because that's something I know uh, a bit more about. But Italy, you, know, you look at the, the statistics, and Italy really didn't start its industrial revolution until probably the 1930s. There was a huge sort of migration underway in the late 30s from the land to the city. And it's a sort of obviously, for obvious reasons, um, stopped during the war and then picked up again in the late 40s and 50s. There was a massive move you know, into the cities and from the south uh, to the north. Um, so we're not that far removed from that Industrial Revolution. You know, there's a couple of generations away. There's still people in Tuscany, not so many of them these days, but you know, I can remember when I first started going, there'd be people who were born as sharecroppers on the old farms um, in, in the 1940s and 50s and, and early 60s uh, in Tuscany. And they would have had one very distinctive way of working. And Tuscany's made that transformation from sharecropping, which was subsistence agriculture, to specialized estates. And, you know, as elsewhere in the world, and particularly in Europe um, in the 1950s and 60s, quantity was more important than quality because we were coming out of a, a, a shortage situation of the war, and science was focusing on you know, increasing crops. So it was fertilizers in the soil. It was choosing clones of grape varieties that were the most productive because quantity was the most important consideration. And it's very easy to understand. You know, it's very easy to condemn it from our own perspective today. But at that time, you had people who needed feeding. So I think it was important. By the late 60s, it was changing. And people realized that perhaps they'd gone too far, a few people. And that has grown and grown over the years. And we've seen um, certain people, you know, certain producers, go back to what was being done. But they're doing it with a modern sensibility, you know, with all the, the scientific advancements. So it's not just a belief, it's not a feeling, it's backed up by the knowledge that they have and the, and the learning that they have. And I think one of the great examples of that is someone like Giovanni Manetti at Fontodi, who He says, you know, in, the 19, in 1970, in, in Chianti, they had um, the old Chianina cows. It's a very slow-growing cows, and that's where the Bisteca Fiorentina came from. Um, and they're fantastic meat, um, but they're expensive because they grow slowly. But they're also beasts of burden. They were used to plow the fields. So there were tens of thousands in Chianti. You know, he's now got about 60 on his estate. And you ask him how many there are in Chianti, he goes, probably about 70. He says, but I wanted to reintroduce them because when I was a boy growing up, we lived on a mixed farm. You know, by the time, you know, I was running this estate, I'd taken it over from my father, we were a specialized farm. So we've now become more of a mixed farm again. Not only the sort of the olives and the vines, but also a few things like barley, some wheat in the lower-lying areas, and the, uh, the cows. So he can use, he's got his own ecosystem again. So he uses the manure from the cows to create the compost, which is enhanced by other factors that he has, sometimes the wheat or the barley. And that is in turn used f to um, fertilize the soils. So it's, 
financially resilient, it's agriculturally resilient, it's socially resilient. And and just before we move on to Tasty's Oils, it would be interesting to talk about the sort of the social glue that holds people together uh, is generally food. And I'm seeing all over the world, from West Africa to South America to India, where communities are needing to be empowered around food to financially glue them to the region. Because your point about the Italian Italians you know, leaving in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s to go to cities, well, that's happening now in Africa, in India, in South America. And the idea of keeping financial uh, systems in place, whether they're producing fonio in Senegal or they're producing corn in Mexico, these communities can be held together by food and and you know estates like capizzano producing wine and oil are a vital part of keeping a culture together wouldn't you say it's keeping culture i think it's keep it's keeping a um, employment in the countryside i think unless people can make money from living and working in the countryside they won't stay there and you'll then end up with in a way what we've got in parts of the uk where they're commuter belts, and the only farms that are there are are large farms owned by large com- countries, uh, companies. Um, I think that if you have these smaller estates in in you know, wine producing regions, it's probably a bit easier. But they've learned to add value to their ag- agricultural produce, um, and we have some farms in the UK that are doing that as well. You've got some, you know, people rediscovering old types of wheat down in Somerset breeding you know rare breed pigs or cows where they can get you know value added for it rather than saying oh god you know we can't make money as a farmer but you need to be creative i think mm-hmm. and the other factor from a wine producing view which is going to keep people on the land are and and they're you know people talk poorly about cooperatives in 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 the wine world they say oh they're just you know, mass production but you know some of the producers some of those co-ops will have you know 1200 members that's 1,200 families who might cultivate, you know, on average, two to three hectares. Now, they may have another job as well. They may drive from where they are, if not in Chianti, let's say in, up in, around Verona. They may go to somewhere around Verona to work. But they come back to work the land as well. And that means the vines are kept there. Sometimes the cherry trees are kept there as well. So you keep the landscape. And if we try to consolidate too much of that, or if we forget about the co-ops and, and the, the, the great strengths that they bring and, and criticize the fact that they're too big or the wine's too cheap, you know, that's not the problem. The problem is let's make the wine better, but let's keep the people on the land. Otherwise, you know, we're going to lose those cherry trees, we're going to lose those vineyards, we're going to lose those beautiful landscapes that we love to visit. I'm really fascinated by how both the general public and chefs i mean not that the chefs aren't part of the general public but you know there are support mechanisms for both cooperatives and farmers and the agricultural system what can the general public our restaurateurs chefs and, and business owners do to support olive oil growers and, and wine producers uh, moving into the future because we are moving into a difficult time. I mean, Britain is leaving Europe and Europe is a huge producer of wine and olive oil and we want to bring it into, into Britain. Um, what are the things that we need to be doing both in our delicatessens, in our supermarkets and our restaurants in order to support what's about to happen? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure if we've got enough time to deal with it. But <laughs> I think in, in, uh, no, in short, I think 
there used to be a view here, you know, oh, why should I spend more than five pounds on a bottle of wine? It's going to be you know, perfectly good. We want to be drinking wine rather than excise duty. You know, excise duty doesn't taste as good as, as wine. So, you know, you're getting the same amount of, you're paying the same amount of duty for a wine that's 10 pounds as you are for five pounds. So basically you're getting almost five pounds more of wine for free. You know, for that extra five quid, you're getting all that wine. I think with oil, it's looking a bit more about where it comes from, you know, and saying that if you're a producer and, you know, some of those big bottlers in Tuscany, don't forget, Italy sells more oil than it produces, which is a, it, 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 it's, it, you think that's rather daft, and you say, well, why is that? Well, Italy's the second biggest oil producer in the year, in the world. Spain's the biggest. Italy is Spain's biggest export market. And they also buy oil from Greece because the Italians are good at selling and exporting. And, you know, you have these labels. That, look, that's a beautiful Tuscan landscape on the label. And you look carefully at the small print on the, on the back label. It's a, a blend of oil from different EU countries, which is it's fine. That's, that's perfectly legal. Um, but it's done to hit a price. And that's, that's, you know, fine if that's what you want to spend. But don't compare it with a single-state oil and say that single-state oil, oh, that, that, that's a rip-off, that's expensive. Except, you know, there's a difference between... 36-month-aged um, Parmesan and, you know, a processed cheese from, you know, that, that, that was made a couple of days ago that tastes a very little. So compare like with like and accept that there's great diversity in the field of wine, in the field of cheeses, and the field of olive oil. Because I think that's, if we start accepting that, then you might say, okay, I'll buy one really good bottle of olive oil for maybe two a year. And for my daily use, I'll buy that inexpensive oil. But when I want to finish that really, you know, I made some great chickpeas, drizzle with olive oil. I made a great salad, a little bit of olive oil on there. And it changes the way you eat, I think. One of the funniest things I realize that I do as a chef is that I give olive oil as a present. You know, you say, hey, hey here's, a, here's a bottle of Capizzano, or here's a bottle of the River Cafe oil, or here's a bottle of Fontodi, right? These people, they tend not to really understand olive oil. So they go, oh, lovely, I'll put it in my cupboard because it's obviously something I've been given and it's very valuable. And they don't use it. But what seems to happen is whenever I go over to their house, I tend to be the only one who uses it. <laughs> so I've kind of got a sort of, you know, bo- bottles of olive oil spread across Britain and, and, and Europe where I sort of open their cupboard and go, oh, they do have some oil. I think I gave it to them a couple of years ago. Um, but, but so uh, back to process. So understanding the process and like for like is something that will, will support and, and, and stop you from criticising the, the, the system when you kind of say, wow, 20 quid for a bottle of oil, that, that, that's a lot. Well, one of the things I'd like to do, David, I'm luckily going to get an opportunity to taste some oils here because I can see them all lined up. But just understanding the process, because uh, people listening in um, probably think, well, it's olives and they squash them and they make oil. But it's not as simple as that. I mean, earlier on, you were, you were sort of talking about the picture. Um, but it would be great to hear from, from your uh, opinion from the flowering and, and, the, and the pollination so the, 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 the olives begin to grow. But there are some processes that probably would be worth describing before we taste these oils um, to sort of understand why uh, the process and why the bottles of, of oil are mm. not expensive, but they cost what they cost. Yeah. You know, it it's, it's always fascinates me that, you know, the olives are picked soon after the grape harvest is finished. So there's also, you know, you think from the, some people, some 
when they first planted olive trees and the vine, they realized that, oh, that's good. We can sort of, we won't have everything to pick at once. You know, we can finish the grape harvest, get that done, and then we look forward to the olive oil harvest. So it tends, tends to start, you know, this year, middle of October. Historically, it always used to be the first week of, of November. You know, you never, never pick in, in October. It was always after um, Onisanti, which is the, you know, um, All Saints. Now, I think global warming has brought it forward. Um, I think enabled in, in, in to, because they want to retain that greenish sort of character, they're picking earlier. Um, but I think the other changes are, you know, I can remember going to visit producers and they'd have these sacks, these old sort of burlap sacks outside the Frantoyo, the mill, the olive oil mill. And you'd say, when was that picked? Oh, a couple of days ago. You know, we just wanted to fill the sack up and then brought it in. Today, those olives are going to be crushed, usually within four hours of picking. So you might be picked during the day as a Fontodia and you crush at five o'clock. Uh, you start crushing at five o'clock that night. So the, the, the new theory is you should crush within eight hours of picking. Most of these guys are trying to do it within four hours. That's to stop the, as soon as you pick, the acidity starts to go up. And people always say, well, what's a, an extra virgin olive oil? Well, extra virgin is a measure of the oleic acid. Oleic acid measures the level of rancidity. So it's 0.8 for extra virgin. These oils are down around between 0.15 and 0.2. So they're incredibly low. After they're brought in, and they're not brought in anymore in burlap sacks because that sort of the air can't get out of there. You end up with sort of almost mold starting. They're picked into these sort of plastic crates, which are easy to wash, and they've got sort of slats in them, so the air flows through. They're then brought in, dumped into the, the sort of filler of the, of the, the crusher, and, and washed to get rid of leaves, dirt, um, clay that's sprayed on the olives to um, protect them against insects, any of that stuff. So it's, so it's all clean. And then they go into this enclosed sort of drum with all these little sort of pistons or hammers crush the olives, usually stone and all, um, into this paste. There's a new style of oil been made in the last 20 years called um, denocciolato, which means de-pitted, de-stoned, because there's some people who like that. They think it makes a purer style of, of, of oil. And I'm agnostic. I think it works very well for Felsner, but I also like the sort of the grunt, in a way, you get from the, from the pit sometimes. So that paste is then goes through this process of it's sort of mixing or kneading, in a way. It's called uh, sort of gramulatura. That's done, again, in an enclosed environment to protect against oxygen. And that start, you do that to release the liquid that's in the paste. So once you've done that, it then goes into a, a centrifuge. Sometimes in a year when the, the, the water levels in the olives are very low, they will add a touch of water at that stage. You need to make sure temperature is kept down around 25 degrees. If you go higher than that, you extract more oil, but you destroy the perfumes. So they'll add, add maybe a little bit of water some years. This year they didn't need any. And that helps the centrifuge. Centrifuge separates the liquid from the paste. The paste is, is pomace or sansa. You might see olio di sansa on a supermarket shelf in Italy. And that gets sent off to another place for dealing with, or they keep it and use it as compost. The liquid then will go through a second centrifuge to remove the oil and the water. And from there, 
the oil just goes into a stainless steel tank. Next day, usually it's filtered right away through cotton to remove impurities. And the reason for filtration, I used to have this, it was a great argument every year with, with Rose Gray. I want unfiltered oil, she'd say. Um, and they'd go, okay, okay, we, we can do that, but we wouldn't recommend that you're using unfiltered oil next spring. Because um, what happens is that the, the, the sort of particles that are left in there, they will precipitate out of the oil. And as they precipitate out, they also drag color out, and they drag perfume, and they form a sediment at the bottom, which causes a little bit of fermentation, so you end up with more impurities, and, and just you lose that fresh, fruity character, and, and the oil becomes more oxidized. So what we got around to doing is we bring in some unfiltered oil from Capizana to last us till Christmas, and then after Christmas, we've got the filtered oil, which will, because it stays fresher and purer for longer, um, if it's filtered right away. And that's it. It's a very simple process. Well, I do remember uh, Rose Gray and um, Ruthie Rogers uh, taking me on a trip to actually Sicily. And uh, we were traveling through Sicily with Anna Tascalanza, yeah. who was a, a historical figure in, in Sicily and, and, and Sicilian food. And she makes her own wine and, and olive oils. And Rose and Ruthie were in the kitchen. And I was actually lucky enough to be in there, just the three of them and, and I. And they were saying to Anna... Oh, we love strong, punchy olive oils. We need to make uh, olive oil taste big and, and bold and, and, and loud on our plate. And Anna said to them, relax, take it easy, give the oil a year, <laughs> taste this. And she gave them some of her oil from about 18 months previously. And that oil was soft and buttery, but still pungent, had a wonderful flavor. And... It was funny to see two people who are deeply passionate about oil, Rose and Ruthie at the time, um, Ruthie still is now, um, to be told by someone to relax, <laughs> calm down, don't rush, you know, don't be there to just taste this super powered and, and, and uh, you know, almost, like you say, volcanic flavour just on the back of the throat. Let the food do the talking and the oil is there just to support it. And so we got back to the River Cafe, and Rose and Ruthie are saying to everybody, relax, we don't want this spicy oil anymore. I thought it was so funny, because they were being influenced, because they are hugely influential, and yet they are being influenced. So everyone gets influenced in a, in a different place, right? David has very, very kindly lined up six oils, all of them from Tuscany, all of them different colours, different pungencies. Um, I can see we're going from a sort of yellowy green all the way through to electric green, into dark green, and then to almost... Oil. I mean, it, it's like um, it's it's not black, but but it's it's so dark green that it's beyond British racing green, isn't it? I mean, it's dark, dark green. Um, it's almost opaque. It's uh, yes, unbelievable. You can't. Yeah, you can hardly see through it. It. it but it looks amazing. Um, so, David, uh, it would be great if we can get a chance to, to try these. And I don't want, you know, we don't need to go too deeply into it, but it is good to understand, you know, how we taste it, what we're looking for, perhaps some of the characteristics. And, and in front of me um, is a plate of, it looks like Tuscan bread. How have you managed to do this? It really does look it's like a, Tuscan it's bread. South London, the old post office bakery um, in, in sort of Landor Road um, in, in Clapham North. Been making great bread for, for decades here. And it's, just, it's a Californian sourdough. And it's just, you know, it's, but it's very good bread. Um, Tuscan bread, of course, as we know, wouldn't have salt in it. So, you know, especially the Florentines, because of historical reasons. And it's also one of the reasons, I think, why, you know, 
when you taste oil in Tuscany, they give you sometimes a fettunto, which is a sort of slice of bread, slightly you know, toasted, a um, little bit of garlic on it, put the oil on it, and then a couple of grains of rock salt on it, you know, which you wouldn't do with breads from anywhere else, whereas in Tuscany you do it, and it's just a fantastic combination. Yeah. You don't necessarily sit around in your, taste, in your kitchen with a wine glass full of olive oil um, for some reason. Um, but you know, I think the way to taste oil, um, and you're assessing it, is, is it is best in a glass um, because put it on bread, that's the way we want to eat it, but there's another variable coming into how you judge the oil then. You know, they always say, professional olive oil tasters, you should never look at the color. I cheat. I always look at the color because I love the color for me just brings the, the oil to life. And it does precondition you to expect a certain thing. Um, but I think I love looking at the colors. But David, it's probably best because I, I appreciate I'm taking your time here. But we've got six oils. Um, would you like to introduce them individually or how would you like to do this as a little tasting? Let's start the first, first one, shall we? Okay. Which is Poggio Tondo. Um, beautiful estate just to the west of, um, of Florence, sort of closer to Florence and to Pisa, quite close to a town called Empoli, um, and very close to a town called Vinci, which is a certain Leonardo came from. Um, but it's a sort of a warmer part of, of Tuscany. The vineyards aren't so high there. Um, it's moderated by the uh, proximity of the sea, much closer to the sea than the other ones. So you tend to get a, an oil that's that little bit sort of softer and rounder. And that's the one that you said it looks a little less electric green than the others. And you see, I think on the nose, you get, you've got lovely sort of cut grass characters, but there's also that softness to it. There's not a fruitiness. There's a sort of a roundness, a sort of nice, um, sort of almost like a sort of broad bean character to it. Well, what what the colour says to me is is almost sunshine. It's as if it's it's the, probably the most sunny of the six, isn't it? There's just just yeah, a yeah. tiny bit of yellow in it. There's yeah. a bit of sunshine in there. I think, you know, as with wine, it's really important to smell the oil because it's as you know, and as with wine, it should be clean. I think and free of of any defects. So any of those horrible sort of buttery, rancid characters or oxidation. Um, and this has lovely, really fresh, clean. I'm certainly not smelling again, anything. Like wine, you know, you take it in your mouth and you swirl it around. You want to make sure it coats the full palate. It's actually, I think, more difficult to taste olive oil, to taste lots of olive oils than it is to taste wine. You know, in the morning, you know, if you you're used to it, you can taste forty, fifty, sixty, you know, eighty wines sometimes if you're if you're having a good day. Olive oils I find, you know, if I get beyond ten or fifteen, the palate gets really fatigued. And that's nothing to do with the alcohol. It's just to do with the, the, the viscosity, I think, of it all. Well, David, I, I remember uh, we, we did a tasting at Selva Piana quite some time ago now. This is in, in Tuscany. And um, it was 60 Minutes were there doing a, an interview of, of Selva Piana or something. And, and they were doing a tasting. And I think you put me up as well as another couple of chefs. So, oh, just, just taste these 30 oils. <laughs> And so I started, I thought I could taste 30 oils easily. And after about 10, I started to feel seriously nauseous. After 20, I was standing there literally just about to fall over. And I think I got to about 24 and I gave up. I think I wasn't sick, but I tell you, I was just unwell because it's almost impossible because your whole head is full of these sort of massively powerful flavors and, and textures. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to have traumatized you in <laughs> such a way. <laughs> you always remember it after all these years. Um, I'll never forget that. So anyway, we're tasting this. So you're saying yeah. we're getting to um, around the palate. 
and excuse the bad table manners, but it's really important when you're tasting to suck that the air in. As again, as with wine, um, so it's got that. Wow, it's, it's getting stronger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> it's, <coughs> it's got, the, and, and this is a, a mistake I think we quite often make. You know, you go out and you taste the oils early, and you think, oh, they're a bit soft this year. And, and I would say, well, wait a month. Let's wait until they're all sort of slightly settled down. The full blend is put together and see what they look like once they've had a little bit of time in bottle. Because it's, you know, it's a bit of a shock, really. You, know, you, you pick the olives, crush, you know, mash them up, centrifuge, filter, and into the bottle. You start to see, I think, always think end of November, early December, you start to see what the oils really look like. Um, and yeah, even two weeks ago, this was looking a bit softer. Than it is today. It's oh, it's, it's delicious. I mean, it, it's super punchy, but it, it, it is, it's quite soft. I mean, it starts soft. Yeah. A, a, a little, it's quite gentle, a tiny bit of butter, but not that we're looking for too much butter in there, but then suddenly it just kind of gives you a bit of a karate chop and says, have, have some of that heat. And you can imagine that on beans, on cannellini beans or something, you know, they'd, they'd coat the beans beautifully, sort of marry beautifully with that creaminess of, of nice cannellini beans, but then give you a bit of punch um, on, on, on the back of the palate. And it's just, it's great being in Tuscany this time. This is the first year in probably 33 years that I haven't been in Tuscany for the first week of, uh, uh, of, of November. And that's, you know, it's probably good for my waistline. Um, but, but, you know, for my sort of spiritual well-being, I'm not sure it is. Because that, that you know, eating and the way the Tuscans adapt the food in preparation for the new oil is great. And it's just a change of the season, the beans coming Cavolo Nero, sort of the kale is in, um, you know, and, and, and that they just marry so beautifully with, uh, with olive oil. On to our second oil. Uh, so that, that first one was a, how do I say that? Poggio Tondo. Poggio Tondo. It means round, round hill. Round hill. It? And that's sort of northeast of Tuscany. It's got a high up on the left. If you think if you're driving from Florence um, to Pisa on the road, they call the Fipi Lee. Um, because it, 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 it goes west from Florence, and when you get towards the coast, it divides, goes south towards Livorno and north towards Pisa. Um, so they're sort of maybe one-third of the way from, um, on that road after you've left Florence. So it's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's just a beautiful part of the world. I can, pic- I can picture the hillsides now. Yeah. So this second oil is now we're tasting is this... Capazzano, which is just... There's a there's a, a hill a, 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 you climb across the Montalbano, you climb from Poggio Tondo down to Vinci and up and across and you come down, and you get to Capizzano, you get to Carmignano and then Capizzano over on one of the other hills. This was um, an, an old property, as it, as you said, it's the first mention they have of it in the archives of Florence goes back to the 800s, um, and. It's been owned by, uh, you know, by a, a Roman soldier, by various sort of families during centuries, by the Medici for a while. It was an old, it was a, um, an estate given to one of the daughters of the Medici family for, as a wedding present. And it was bought by the current family in the 1920s. Um, and they've always made this, they make, they make excellent wine. Um, and they make, um, I think, a, a very sort of delicate and gentle olive oil, but a, you know, the balance on this is just absolutely wonderful. Here you see much more of that sort of cut grass character, freshly cut grass character, which you get from good olive oil. 
Um, it's so clean. It's very clean, yeah. isn't it? It's so yeah. clean. And it's like they're wise. There's an elegance to them because they're they're sort of they've got a cool moderating influence coming in from from the sea and from the um, Apennines. But as you go to the Capizzano estate and that whole region outside of Florence, there is an elegant nature to it, isn't there? Year after year, you go back again and again, and there's a there's just elegance that I think just grows out of the hillsides, doesn't it? And there's, you just see this sort of um, accumulation of centuries there. And you, there's a, um, you walk outside their, their villa, and there's a terrace behind. And on a clear day from that terrace, you can see the Duomo in Florence. Um, so it's you just... It, it never ceases to take my breath away. Yeah, truly, absolutely truly. Uh, we have now the third bottle. So this is a, this is what I love because the third and the fourth oils are both made by the same person. So they're both made by the by the Manetti family, by Giovanni Manetti, who owns Fontodi. <coughs> but his mother's family have a small estate to the west of Chianti Classico. Um, just outside the Chianti Classico border um, in, the, in a commune called Barberino Valdelsa. The soil there is different, so they have, they're a bit like Capizzano. They have more Moreolo than, than Corregiolo. Um, whereas Fontodi, the fourth oil, has more Corregiolo than Moreolo. So you know, he's adapted to what he thinks is best for the soil. The production is exactly the same. You know, the growing is the same. The way they press it and filter it and bottle is exactly the same. So, the, and the difference you're seeing here is very much one of variety and place. And, and the aroma is not that different, really, to the Capizzano, really. But actually, on the palate, it's completely different. And 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 there's a perfume to it, really perfumey. If it's I, it's almost got there's like a wild herb perfume there, isn't there? And it's, it's a bit further south than Capizzano, so it's a warmer. Um, area, the Capitan. It doesn't have that moderating influence from the, the Apennines to the same extent. Um, but it's got that, there's a touch of artichokes coming through on the finish as well here, which the first time we've seen artichokes, I think, coming across to any great extent in these oils. It's funny, whenever you go to an olive oil tasting, you tend to hear everybody going, artichokes, artichokes, oh, I can taste artichokes. And this is the first time you've said that word, which I'm really happy about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, I think it's... Um, the vocabulary for oil tasting tends to be much more limited than, than um, uh, that for wine. So. I think it's fair to say, and, and this is not here an advertisement for the River Cafe, but, but to all of you olive oilers who are listening to this, there is a sense of Tuscan oils specifically, but maybe Italian oil, and, and, and how they're connected to one particular restaurant in London and your relationship with that restaurant, David. And, and what's interesting about how people can make a difference or chefs can make a difference or businesses really ha- how they focus on on excellence um, will give life to and support an industry that, that may just be not not be considered as special as it should be and I think the River Cafe need to be sort of held up there on that would you like to say a little bit about that before we move on because this is the River Cafe oil we're tasting yeah I think you're you're absolutely right I think that um to be frank, you know, we wouldn't be bringing in these many oils if it weren't for what the River Cafe has been doing for the last 30 years. They provided a market for these producers. And I'd go so far as to say that I think a lot of these producers wouldn't be making as much oil as they make if it weren't for the River Cafe because they, couldn't be, they wouldn't be able to sell it all so easily. And I think that they recognize the importance that the River Cafe has played in the sort of, um, you know, 
renaissance um, of, of, of olive oil in the last 30 years. And that, that is, you know, when people say, oh, what, what difference can I make? You know, I, I'm just a chef, I'm just starting out, or I, I'm working from home and I want to uh, cook a, a delicious meal for somebody. The difference is that you can make is supporting artisanal producers like this uh, uh, with produce that you know is excellent. I mean, it, even though it's not expensive, you know, people say, oh, you know, oh, God, it's a 20-pound bottle of oil. Um, but it makes a massive difference socially, economically, culturally, uh, in identifying with a, uh, with a region of the world. And whether it's olive oil or wine or cheese or, or, or meat, you know, it, it's about supporting uh, a system of food that um, can be celebrated. Yeah, and, and I think it, it makes a difference as well um, on the plate. I think, you know, I've been to restaurants, very good restaurants, and you taste them and you go, hmm, that oil is not very good. And I think it's because a lot of chefs, classically trained, would not regard olive oil as an important, um, you know, ingredient in what they do. They'd spend a fortune on good butter, quite rightly so, but would regard olive oil as, as just something, I'll just use that for whatever I can get. Um, and I remember very well once going to, um, at when, when 15 was uh, first starting out and you know, we'd take the apprentices to Tuscany each year for them to learn about olive oil. One of the head chefs coming in a couple of years later um, and saying, he said, I was amazed. I was told off by these apprentices for using the wrong oil. I went to grab one because I had never been, you know, I'd been trained in kitchens. and You just pick up the olive oil and, and do it. And they said, no, no, chef, we don't use that oil for that purpose. It's the first time in my career I'd ever heard that. And that came out of... Uh, you know, Jamie going with Rose and Ruthie to Tuscany and learning from these producers about how they used oil and the different types of oil for different types of food um, in the kitchen. That also is a really important thing to say. I mean, we've got a few more oils to taste here, but, but you know, uh, characters like Jamie or, or Hugh, or I mean, there are chefs that have come through um, the kitchens like the River Cafe or the kitchens from the Rue Brothers or the kitchens from Marco Pierre White or Gordon Ramsay who have been given a sense of excellence yeah. from these chefs who are in a position to make changes in people's lives. And so young apprentices or even head chefs who've come through these other restaurants which have been influential in creating a different food system, in Britain especially, um, has left behind a legacy that, that is being carried on. And, and we're getting opportunity to talk about it here. I mean, I've had both experiences with the River Cafe and with Jamie at 15. I've been very lucky with olive oil and with the, the characters who've influenced me. But it's important, isn't it, that you know, chefs continue to influence and leverage support for products like this. I think it's, it's I, yeah, and I think it's like any industry or any, anything you're doing, you're trying to promote what's best. Um, and you know, you'd call it best practice in, in, in other industries. Um, and, you know, you look at someone like um, Tim at Trullo. You know, Tim was a, an apprentice at 15. He's now got a great restaurant together with Jordan at Trullo. And, and he's obsessed with olive oil. And, you know, he's got four or five dishes on at the moment because it's new seasoned olive oil. And that's it's almost like he's the third generation, you know, that's taking that forward. Um, and I think that's great to see, and it's great to see that that has spread out. And, you know, when Rose and Ruthie first took it on, people like Alistair Little, because Alistair had spent time in Tuscany, or in Umbria rather, would, would love, you know, using some of the oils. Rowley would do a little bit, even though Rowley was, you know, Rowley Lee was classically trained at, at um, Gavroche. Uh, you know, 
he was influenced by them and, and used oil as well. And it's great to see, I think, that more and more people are using it. It's not the be-all and end-all, because for a lot of chefs, they want to have a broader range. For the River Cafe, it's central to what they do, I think, and that's the, that's the key. But I think seeing it used in certain dishes in the right way is, uh, is credit to all that's come out of, of what the River Cafe started. It's nice that you mentioned Roly Lee. Roly Lee actually started my career. He picked me up at 16 and said, I'll give you a job. And I was an apprentice. And he actually taught me how to make his salt cod brandard with that olive oil in those early days. And I never knew what was happening. You know, when as a young apprentice in the kitchen, you don't really understand what's going on. The chef is showing you something and you're just replicating. But I can't make a salt cod brandard without putting in a really good oil. Not too strong. Because then it does; it's too hot. But but um, Roly would either use a really good. It would, sometimes the French would make an olive oil, and, and he would use that because he was, like you say, classically trained by the by the Rue brothers. Um, well, we've got two more oils to get through. Um, oh no, actually, no, three. Sorry, we're we're at number four, so we are in Fontoli now. So this is the the sort of um, in the heart of Chianti Classico, so exactly halfway between um, Florence and Siena. A lot of people might have heard of the, the mad butcher of Panzano, Dario Cecchini. Um, so he, Dario and Giovanni Manetti are great friends. And um, they, uh, you know, if, you, if, you, if Dario comes and um, sort of cooks a few grills, uh, you know, a few cows or so at, uh, at, at Giovanni's, so whenever Giovanni has one of his Chianina slaughtered, it's done by Dario. And Dario always comes and he finishes the steak. You can see him with huge hands and he pours oil over the top and he sort of picks up the meat and sort of massages the oil um, into it. And you know, he's so thoroughly Tuscan, he couldn't imagine serving uh, a sort of steak without oil. Um, and this is the oil he would use. And again, I think here you see that the, the greater, more sort of fruit character that's coming over that compared to these first three. Because this is where we now move into something that's more Corrigiolo-based as a variety, so that greener style and more aggressive. Um, I, I know what you mean when you say the greener style, although it is very green in colour, but there is a green pungency, isn't there? There's, there's, there's a green aroma, and, and it's quite spicy. It's a, this is spicy, and that's that, that's that so slightly you know, underripe Corrigiolo gives you that slight burn on the finish. Um, and it comes a bit late at the moment. It's, it's, you know, in about a month, it'll be more integrated. There's a bit of a dip at the moment where it goes quiet and then the burn sort of comes up. Um, but it's, it's, and it's very long. It's a very long oil. And I think that's a sort of it's beautifully intense. It's got that right, to me, beautiful balance between intensity and a sort of sinewy, sort of linear character to it. And it's got that sort of Green is almost an olive skin character to it, which uh, almost saline on, on the finish, which I which I love. There is there is there's a there's a mineraliness, isn't there? Yeah. It's just a tiny bit of mineral. And actually, funnily enough, uh, Fontodi, when we did a tasting with you, David, uh, last week, and and one of the um, one of the oils, I said, to, I looked at this one and went, hmm, I've always been a big fan, and it's on my table at the moment, and I'm dressing my food with it, but but. Thought well, I, I'll, I'll go to Capitano or I'll go to Felsino, which we'll taste in a minute. But but actually, that now a week later has actually changed its character, and it's 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 bigger and it's bolder, and I actually really like that now. I think probably the samples we used last week as well. I think we're pre-bottling samples or early bottlings, which are sent over, 
air freighted over and then we decanted and sent out. Whereas this is something that's already in bottle and already arrived here. So it's a, you've got the final blend here. So it's, um, but it, it is, it is getting better each, you know, I use this, um, at the moment I'm trying to use them all uh, at home to see how they're like. And, and this is just, it's changing every day and just getting better and better. Um, the next one is, <coughs> the fifth one is from Selva Piana, which is pretty well as far north as you can go in Tuscany. Um, you know, a couple of kilometers north of where they are, the um, olive tree can't be cultivated anymore. It's too cool. And really, that's just, with the exception of around Lake Garda or around Liguria, it's as far north as you will get um, to, with, uh, to find um, olive trees uh, in, in you know, commercial sort of quantities. Um, so it's the northernmost limit, really, for the production of olive oil. This is about 95% Corrigiolo or Frantoio. Um, and I remember visiting here um, in the mid-'80s, maybe 86 or so, and Francesco Giuntini, who, was the, um, who, who is the owner, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm just laughing because Arthur's face. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's, like, swallowed a couple of chilies or so. Oh, my, what that is, my eyes are watering. My God, that is like uh, I've just eaten a chili. Yeah, yeah. It's, and Francesco would say, you know, we are a very good wine producer, but no one in Tuscany makes better olive oil than us. <laughs> and he, was a, he was really uh, you know, an olive grower rather than a wine grower. Uh, but it is such a distinctive style of oil. And I think it is a great, great year for, for Sobo Piano as well. My God, I'm sorry to pull the microwave away from David, but I am literally here with tears in my eyes. The Selva Piana oil is burning, but the flavour is unbelievable. And the character, there's sunshine, there's green, there's grass, there's perfume. It's huge. Yeah. <coughs> sorry, I've just yeah. swallowed it as well. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it's like sort of, you know, it, it's, it's got cut grass, it's got artichokes, and it's got like sort of, you know, artichokes with chilli flakes put on top of them or something like that. Um, and I can remember, this is was one of our wine tastings once, one of our wine producers from Verona came over to me and says, come here, I want you to taste this oil. There's something wrong with it. It's defective. And he said, made me taste this oil. And I said, yeah, that's, 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 that's it. He says, but it's peppery. They've added something to it. I said, no, it's Tuscan oil. He was two and a half hours north. But Verona, the oil is grown around Lake Garda. It's much softer. It's used generally for... Um, you know, on fish, or they don't use it to the same extent as they would in Tuscany on, on meats or more robust dishes. Um, so he was shocked. He thought this, this was an oil that was uh, bizarre, and he'd never, you know, wouldn't ever use it, wouldn't how, know how to use it. Um, but it's as robust as it gets, and it's um, to me, it's almost the quintessence of, of, of Tuscan oil. Beautiful. Okay, so last but not least, the colour on this, and, and David, you say colour is never an indicator, but this is the darkest greenest. I don't know if, ever, if anyone ever seen a, has seen a wheat grass shot before. <laughs> this is as dark as a wheat grass shot. That's how deep green this is, and it's it's just it looks amazing. It, it's almost an an unbelievable colour. It, it is, uh, you know, and I've been visiting Felsner for over thirty years. Um, I first visited there in the autumn of, of uh, summer of nineteen eighty six. And and it was um, this. I've never seen an oil like this. Never, never. Um, this is just a remarkable year. And, and um, Giuseppe Mazzacolin, who ran the estate from 1982 through to a couple of years ago, and still keeps a watchful eye over oil because it's one of his great passions. 
is um, he says, I never have either. And it's a combination, he thinks, of a, a dry year, but so you've got the, sort of an increase in viscosity, but not a really boiling hot year. So, you know, the oil is fairly moderate in a lot of ways. There are peaks, but not extended or protracted peaks of hot temperatures. So you didn't get overripeness of the oil. So they were able to pick early, not with much, you know, usually you associate drought with a hot year, and this year it wasn't. So you've got a combination of viscosity and greenness to it, which is just, I think, outstanding. Outstanding. And wonderful. Not quite as <coughs> artichokey or cut grass as the previous two. And this is, again, majority Corrigiolo, probably just, I think it's just over 60%. You know, got that lovely viscosity, not the pepperiness of the Fontodio de Salpiano, because it's, you know, here you're, you know, probably 10 to 15 kilometers down the road from Siena. You're looking um, across the road and you're out of Chianti Classico and into the Crete Senese, and those beautiful sort of rolling sort of, you know, clay hills where the vine doesn't really work, but where um, huge amounts of, of sheep. Are, are grazed for pecorino, um, so it's where Pienza is and, and that sort of area. So, um, so it's a warmer area, and you know, again, you just, just a little bit of spice coming through on the finish, but nothing compared to the the previous two. And it, it, it almost, when I first smelt it, I almost felt like I was smelling rocks or, or, or a type of minerality that, that you, I'm not really tasting but there is a, a softness to it but a very gentle heat that kind of almost just sits at the same temperature and, and after tasting it for about 90 seconds or, or two minutes now it's still going down the edges of my tongue and but there's 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 no other aftertaste now it's just this lovely warmth and I think probably reached the, the end of six, and that's probably enough oils <laughs> to taste. Um, but actually, uh, the Felsina um, oil, which is the sixth, the one we just tried, uh, we're sort of a bit effervescent about it. But I think all six have been amazing, and it's been an amazing year, hasn't it? Consistency-wise, I, I don't think I've ever seen a year that's been this good in, 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 since the late 80s. Unlike with wine, where quite often um, you know, you get high quantity of grapes does not necessarily equate to good quality of wine. With olive oil, it's quite often the difference. You know, you get small crops and you don't get good oil. Whereas you get decent crops, good crops, um, then you get good oil because you get more even ripening. And this year, um, I think they've got those good volumes. Um, and I think there's a balance to these oils this year, which is just, uh, just fantastic. And it's a combination of good conditions meeting people, producers, who've changed and learned a lot and are prepared to capture the very best of the year. And, and olive oil is, is a very interesting subject and an interesting ingredient. And your point about chefs perhaps not giving it as much respect as it needs to be given, or perhaps some chefs understanding and, other, and, and others not. Um, there needs to be really for, for the listeners who are, who are tuning in here and listening to, to David's uh, description and, and knowledge of olive oil is there needs to be exploration if you don't know olive oil 
get out there and try it. Get out there and, and, and get a couple of different bottles and, and, you know, have an evening of olive oil tasting or dip some bread in it or grill some bread and put some oil on top. And you will get different characters coming out from the different bottles. But single estate, um, places like Tuscany will always be giving us pretty good olive oil. But David, um, I can't... I also add one thing to that, Arthur. I think try to look for a vintage date on, 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 the, on the label. You know, uh, some people might blend across... Some of the bigger bottlers might blend across vintages. Um, again, that's fine to hit a price point. But the single estate oils, if you want something the fresher, the better, then you want to be looking for the most recent vintage. You know, you can, be, you can have an oil from 2017 which if a bottle today, the sell-by date, is, I think, 18 months from the date of bottling. So the, the sell-by date for a 2017 oil would be the same as for one of these, which was just bottled last month or earlier this month. So don't look too much at the sell-by date. Look at the vintage on the, on the uh, bottle. And if there's no vintage, then think again. And so, David, when we're looking at very specialised olive oils like this, and, and for me, they're not particularly specialised because you can get a, quite a, a, a great uh, variety of olive oils in the delicatessens and, and supermarkets now. But um, where do people go to get olive oil like this? I mean, do they just call you, or, or, or how do you go out and, and buy this stuff? Well, we're you know we're importers and we sell to the trade. We don't sell to the, the to consumers. But if you go to our website, there is a, a link on there which gives you a list of of some of the retailers who do sell. Um, olive oils and if they buy from us they'll also be buying perhaps from some other importers and they'll have a good range um, but you know you, you go to some of the yeah look, look for people like that who specialize in olive oil and are going to um, you know and you'd be surprised at some of the names on there you know a lot of them might be wine shops um, but, but you know they've they've come to oil through the the wine producers um, others will be more food specialists and they'll you know they'll want these as well so that's a good place to start, I'd say, and then, it, then you can branch out from there. Well, David Gleave, I can't thank you enough. And the Food FM, you know, the listeners I, I should be in, in awe of, of the storytelling that you've, you've done here. And, and, I, and to be able to come to your offices and, and listen to you talk about oil, I, I can't thank you enough. And I think I'm going to go back and try this. Uh, I think I might try the silver piano oil again because I just want to know why it knocked my head off so heavily. <laughs> David, thank you so much. Thank you, Arthur. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Arthur's Table on Food FM with your host, Arthur Potts Dawson.